The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning again to P.I.'s Declassified and welcome uh, I just want to take a moment this morning to remember Bert Fallbaum. Bert was a real, well-respected private investigator and with absolutely too many credentials to even list. He passed away last Saturday morning, June, July 25th, and certainly our condolences to his wife, Peggy, who was at his bedside. He had suffered from cancer, and, and we're going to miss him. He was uh, quite a leader in the private investigation profession worldwide, actually. There's so much to talk about today, oh my goodness. Um, Don't forget the Digital Forensic Summit coming up at the Santa Barbara campus at the University of California, August 7th and 8th. That's next um, Friday and Saturday in a week. Um, Just Google Digital Forensic Summit if you're interested. And on August 26th, the California Association of Licensed Investigators is sponsoring a webinar with Lester Rosen. He's a premier pre-employment kind of a uh, guy, expert. Um, The subject is pre-employment background checks in California, dangers and landmines facing private investigators. So for that, go to www.cali-pi.org, C-A-L-I-P-I.org. Okay, so that takes care of the business. I want to welcome Hank Foresta. Hi, Hank. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Hank is a retired Los Angeles police detective and narcotics officer. And he's written a book, a fabulous book, called LAPD Chronicles, A History of the War on Drugs from 1964 to 1992, which is the time he was at the department. So he's going to tell us about this. And Hank, so what were you doing before you went to work for the police department? Oh, I was working at a gas station. I wasn't doing much. How old were you when you went to work for the department? Uh, I was 24, uh, going to college, uh, Cal State LA, actually, and uh, and one of the neighbors uh, convinced me to go down and uh, apply to the police department, which I did. Best thing I ever did. And had you been interested in police work before that? No, I really wasn't. Uh, I was kind of. Uh, he was. Kind, he was a, uh, a, a sheriff's posse, uh, 
and part-time, I, I, I guess that was called an auxiliary at the time. I, I don't remember, but uh, he was involved in search and rescue, and uh, he kind of he convinced me to, to, to leave college and uh, join the police department, and, and it wasn't an easy process. Uh, it, it took almost a year the application at that time uh, to complete it and, uh, you know, uh, go through all the steps that it takes to, to become a policeman. I don't know what they are now, but uh, at that time, uh, <clears throat> there was a written and psychological and uh, background test that, that took months. And finally, so, I, got, uh, I got on. Well, that's great. That's perfect. So when they did the background, is this the kind of background that you see in the movies where they go around and talk to all your neighbors and all your everybody you've put down as references and uh, try to gather uh, bad stuff about you if it's there? <laughs> well, it, it went beyond that. Uh, they went they went back east. Uh, I'm from Massachusetts. I'm born in Boston, and uh, they interviewed my uncles. And, uh, oh really? Yeah, it it, it was uh, it was more thorough than I thought it would be, and uh, and it was uh, quite an operation. I I don't know if they do that anymore, if they so, even care. Yeah. So um, today, some departments have polygraphs. Did you have to take a polygraph? Yes, I had to take a polygraph. The old, the old system, you know, with the with the big. <laughs> Now they just plug it into the back of a computer, but uh, the right. old polygraphs were, were huge, and yeah. uh, they hooked and, you up. And then, uh, so you, you had to go through a psych evaluation, you had to do a written test. Uh, did you have to go before an oral board? Yes, an oral. Uh, they give you an oral before, before the, uh, oh, let me see. I can't remember. I think the oral came after the, after everything was done, uh-huh. and uh, and then they brought you in and uh, they talked to you for about an hour, hour and a half, something like that, and uh, it, was, it was the equivalent to an oral. Was was it an interrogation or did they just ask you questions? Well, the guy was real nice. He told me what he did. Uh, <clears throat> that's when I found out that uh, they they actually had gone back east and uh, interviewed my uncles, and uh, and then they told me what all, every test was and uh, and who they talked to, and I, I was quite shocked at the time because I, I I knew nothing at the time. And none of these people that were your family members let you know that they were talking to them. No, no, no one, no one told me. And huh. They told them to, to not to say anything, and by God, they didn't say anything. <laughs> they didn't say anything. Oh, that's hysterical. Uh, I don't think that uh, would happen today. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Everybody talks Which, today. So, um, yeah, so, it'd, be on, it'd be on Facebook instantly. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. So... Um, what were you planning on doing? What were you studying in college before you decided to go apply? Well, I started out, I wanted to be a teacher, a history teacher. And then I got into the teaching program and, 
and I figured out that I didn't want to do that. So I went into uh, government, and uh, I wanted to work for the State Department and uh, travel the world, and and that's what I was doing. Uh, but at the same time, I was married, I had a child, uh, I was working seven days a week, and, uh, you know, trying to make ends meet, and it was piling up on me. Yeah. So yeah. when I at the time that I applied... Um, uh, that's that's what I was doing, and and my next door neighbor that was pushing me, he had given me a horse. He giving you and a horse? So I had a, a horse, a real a real horse. He was a horseman, and um, and he liked to ride, and and he he was encouraging me to ride with him. So I was doing all these things, plus. He gave me this horse, and he said to me, <laughs> you know, you, you can have the horse if you take care of my horses. So every oh, morning I got up at, at, at the break of dawn and uh, went over to his barn and uh, fed the horses, cleaned the manure, and uh, that was it. Amazing. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. It was a lot. I was, I was doing too much at the time. So... Um, so uh, a, a change was was in the wind, and uh, and I I was lucky enough to make that change. Well, it's fabulous, Hank, and and I know you have a, a long uh, long history with LAPD. So at some point in time, um, I guess you worked your way up, and you were assigned to the um, the drug task force. Yes. So, um, and this was, I, those of us that are old enough to remember all this that was going on, the years of the flower children and the drugs and all of that, and then um, President Nixon came out with his declaration and his war on drugs. Yeah, it, it was, it didn't really affect us. Uh, we were already in the war, uh, and uh, from, I, I got involved in 64, uh, I, I was in the academy, and, uh, and well, while I was in the academy, uh, they called my name, and uh, I went up and, and, uh, to the lieutenant, and he said, uh, there's two guys who want to talk to you. So I went downstairs and uh, went into this room, and uh, the two guys that wanted to talk to me were narcotic officers, and and basically, what they were asking me was, you know, did I want to go undercover? And the way they put it to me is, you know, policemen, when they become policemen and they put on a uniform, they get that certain swagger about them, and, uh, <clears throat> and everybody knows that they're policemen. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to, they wanted to take me... Uh, before I, I I did that. Before you got and, the swagger, uh, huh? <laughs> yeah, they wanted a rookie. I got the swagger. <laughs> so I went I I went into to what they called a narcotic buy program, and it was an undercover program, and it was supposed to last for six months, and mine lasted for about nine months, and I had a lot of fun. I I, I was in the beginning. Uh, they sent me down to uh, an area 
and that I didn't I didn't relate to actually I I didn't relate to any of it because I I had never even heard the word narcotics I I didn't know what marijuana was I didn't know what heroin was and wow. you know and that in my generation you had to be involved or you didn't know right yeah. and and I didn't know and uh, and it was it was like I was I was in the candy shop, but I didn't know what candy was. Yeah, you know, wow. Uh, and, so what, and, uh, and what area were you assigned to, Hank? I was uh, assigned to uh, uh, an area in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, was basically um, uh, white violators that uh, they had... Uh, some intelligence were was selling drugs on the street, and uh, and 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 when I went down there uh, to to see, uh, I was brand new, so no one talked to me. I saw no one to talk to. So it was kind of a. This is I lay this out in the in the book, and uh, and then later I came back about a week later. And I was in the office, and uh, and a, one of the detectives came over to me, and I guess he felt sorry. I don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe he was just uh, giving me education, but he said he had an informant, <clears throat> but it was in a Mexican area, uh, east East Los Angeles, and uh, I didn't speak Spanish, so um, it was it would be difficult. And but I took to it real quick, and uh, I met the uh, the informant, and uh, and you know after maybe three or four buys, uh, I <laughs> it sounds funny to say it, but it's it's almost like you were a pro, you know, right? And then, right. Uh, and, and then about <laughs> seventy or eighty buys later. I was a pro. Oh, there you go. And, uh, yeah, and and total, I probably, I don't remember the exact amount, but it was over a hundred buys that I that I did. And, in the nine uh, in the nine months that you were there. Yeah, in the nine months that I was there, um, and then I then I was, uh, you know, I was finished, and I was getting ready to be assigned to patrol, which I'd never been before. I never never been in a uniform before, so except in the academy, so it was kind of a new thing for me. And uh, and just as I was leaving, the I was supposed to be there on my last day. The sergeant came up to me and said, "One more assignment." And so he he sent me to a coffee shop in uh, in Hollywood, and uh, basically a. A beatnik place, and uh, they were serving juices and cookies and uh, stuff like that. And uh, and uh, little did I know, uh, but I found out pretty quick they were they were selling uh, marijuana and peyote and uh, mm-hmm. different stuff. Yet the cocaine hadn't hadn't come on the market yet. Right. So it it was there, but uh, it it wasn't in abundance like it 
like it was down the road. And I can't remember what year it came into be, but it changed everything. It was probably in the 70s uh-huh. that, uh, that cocaine came on the marketplace. Well, but anyway, when you, that's, that's it. When you, and when you went on this first assignment, I went right after you got your training, were you just told that you needed to go to this area and buy some drugs? <laughs> How did that work? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My my first assignment. I, I yeah. I, I was just cold. <laughs> I was sent there by myself and go to this area and uh, hang out on the street corner and see if you can hook up with somebody and 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 buy some drugs. And and nobody I didn't was see anybody. Any <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, so I didn't see anybody or. Or meet anybody, and uh, but probably they saw a new face and ran the other way. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And then that last assignment, um, what was that about? <clears throat> that was uh, a thing that came up. It was uh, it was a coffee shop. Uh, the they were beatniks, and it, and it opened like at eleven. I can't remember ten or eleven o'clock at night, and. It, it went till uh, eight in the morning or six in the morning, something like that. And uh, it was basically a house, and they had gutted the house and put in uh, uh, tables and chairs and uh, different things. And and uh, people just went there to to uh, to talk and uh, and you know. They didn't do anything out in the open. They didn't smoke mm-hmm. pot in the open, but but they made cookies uh, that was uh, laced with uh, marijuana, and so you could buy cookies uh, uh, and and eat the cookies right there. And and then uh, they had a patio, and I never made it to the patio because it it it. Uh, I suspect maybe the, there was smoking going on there or uh, drug use and. Yeah, but while I was there, maybe the second second day, I met a I met a gal, and she wanted to s- sell me some peyote. Well, I didn't okay. even know what peyote was. <laughs> okay, Hank, and, we, uh, Hank, would you hang on to that for just a second? We need to take a quick break, and this sounds like a good story. So let's take a break. We'll be back in a few minutes with Hank Presta. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. 
For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Los Angeles Police Department retired Hank Foresta is telling us about his experiences with the war on drugs in L.A. during his career that started in, I believe, 1964 or some thereabouts. So, Hank, you're just talking about this lady, that, this woman that was wanted to sell you peyote and you didn't know what peyote was. So go ahead with that. Right. <laughs> well, I, I, I told her that I was interested and... Uh, and then she said she would bring it the following night. And so I went back to the office and I asked uh, the sergeant, I said, uh, you, know, you, you guys interested in a peyote? I can buy some peyote. And they were very interested because they hadn't seen it in, uh, in quite some time. Hmm. So they gave me some money and I forget how much she was asking for it, 150 or something like that. Anyway, um, I went back that following evening and uh, had the money with her, and I, I met the gal, and uh, she had a brown paper bag, and peyote looks like like root or, or mushrooms or something like that, and it's mm-hmm. firm. You're, you're supposed to scrape it off and put it in a pipe and, and smoke it, and, uh, and it, uh, it's a hallucinogen. Uh, you, know, you, you see all kinds of stuff, and so... <clears throat> that's what they tell me anyway, but anyway, <laughs> I, I never it, tried it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I wouldn't try it. So I bought it, and uh, but she made sure that the transaction occurred outside of the uh, of the friendly club, uh, which which was what it was name, uh, named named. Um, and I put the stuff right in the in my trunk and gave her the money and then walked back in and uh, <clears throat> conversed with the with the people that were there and and uh, bought some uh, marijuana cookies and uh, stuff like that. And, but anyway, uh, I went I went back to the office the ne- next morning and uh, showed them the peyote and they were. They were thrilled, and as a matter of fact, uh, a cameraman from uh, Los Angeles Times. We had, we had a uh, uh, the Times had someone assigned to the police department, 
uh, one of their reporters and a, uh-huh. and a photographer, and uh, they come over and uh, they were interested and they took a lot of pictures of it. And it, it's been the first peyote seizure that that had been made for many years. So anyway, it was uh, if you're if you're Indian, uh, if you're an Indian American Indian, you could have it. It wasn't illegal. Oh really? But, yeah, yeah. If you're huh. an American Indian, because they uh, they used it in their uh, spiritual uh, uh, stuff, and uh, I don't know, I, I don't really know how they used it, but <clears throat> that's what I was told. That if the if that cow was had any American Indian in her, in her, uh, she was she was legally to possess it, but she couldn't sell it. I see. Okay. <clears throat> so. Anyway, uh, but uh, it, it it we didn't even go to court. She uh, copped out to it and uh, uh, probably got a probably got probation. I I would imagine, but yeah. you know. So that made say. that made quite a name for you to make the first peyote bust in years. Yeah, you know, I I had already made over a hundred buys, so I was kind of like a. And, and nine months before that, I, I knew nothing. Right. And nine months later, I became an a... Yeah, I was an expert. <laughs> yeah. So but, I'm curious, Hank, you know, after spending years um, fighting drugs and marijuana and stuff like that, how do you feel about what's going on about marijuana today? Well, I think it's a mistake what they're doing uh, in Colorado and... and definitely a mistake because and you'll also see the the crime rate is is going up and uh and it's uh it's going to continue to go up because people that are involved in the drug trade they're like in a different world not mm-hmm. the world that we know of mm-hmm. not that everybody goes to work and comes home has has a wife and child and and you know has a None of that happens for them. They they live on a day to day basis, and uh, they're stealing, they're lying, they're cheating, they're trying to outdo them, their their competitors, and uh, they'll do anything for it. The other thing that that happened, that has happened, which has not made the news, is that for for many many years, Mexico controlled the marijuana trade in this country. Mm-hmm. I mean, they brought it in uh, either from Colombia or from uh, Mexico, mostly from Mexico. So now <clears throat> that means they don't they don't bring it in like they did right. uh, by the tons. And uh, <clears throat> so they've dispatched people uh, over here to to start growing marijuana and uh, and selling marijuana in. And I don't know if you read in the newspaper just a few days ago uh, where it was in the National Forest, uh, the, the, uh, they came upon a patch of marijuana and uh, two aliens were sleeping in the bushes and, and they, they caught them. And, uh, and that's what they were from. They were working for the cartels and... Uh, because the cartel is trying to set themselves up over here, as uh, because the, everybody assumes that eventually marijuana is going to be legal 
in in every state. Right. And uh, so you don't the, the think that legal legalizing it solves the problem? Oh no, it makes it worse. It well, makes just it look worse. at Mexico. Yeah. It's not legal in Mexico, but they turn their head, and it might as well be legal. But look at the cartels. Look at look yeah. at how much. Look! Look what influence they have on on every aspect of society. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I think if if we uh, turn our backs uh, and make drugs and marijuana legal, uh, we're going to have the same problem that Mexico and Colombia had uh, or has, and uh, and it's just going to going to make the problem worse. Hmm. Look at how many people are in in uh, in rehab. I know from drug usage, and I mean it's before when I started in in the '60s, you never heard of anybody going to rehab. That's true. People got sick, or they overdosed, and they died, or whatever. But you never heard about it. But now, people go into rehab by the by the tens of thousands. It's true, and, and it's not even a black it, mark. It's true. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, it's 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 terrible. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we make more addicts and more people using drugs, which is what's going to happen, then we're going to have more rehab places. We're going to have more more of our children are going to be experimenting with drugs and. Uh, and it's it's not going to be it's not going to be good for society. So, what do you say, Hank, to the people that, that say that um, marijuana isn't an addictive drug? Well, they're fooling themselves. Okay. <laughs> because because you can look at uh, countries uh, that have used marijuana, and uh, actually. You know the history of uh, our marijuana laws are are uh, quite interesting. Uh, we we didn't we didn't uh, uh, control marijuana and make it illegal until a, it came up in the United Nations, which is after the war. And certain countries like Pakistan and uh, and and in in those places like that. Uh, they wanted to make marijuana illegal because what it was doing, it was it was prohibiting their populace from uh, from production. Uh, hmm. They weren't producing enough to for the community to, you know, they had people laying around uh, smoking marijuana and uh, and and basically had formed a a. Uh, a subculture. Yeah, not getting the just work like, done that needs to be done. Yeah. You know, just just like we do. It's drugs are a subculture and yeah. uh and it's it's a bad thing for us to have sub subcultures. Everybody should be working in the same direction and for for people to do, be involved in uh drugs they become uh, dependent on the on the uh, community for for their livelihood, and we call it welfare. Mm-hmm. And look at Skid Row. Mm-hmm. That'll 
that tells it all. <laughs> Alcohol and drug abuse is probably the number one uh, reason why they're on Skid Row. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's happening so around the country. Back to back to your involvement with LAPD. You got involved then in um, undercover um, air and sea work as well, didn't you? Yes. Uh, after they have a rule in the in the police department uh, at the time, I think they still have it that you have to work three patrol divisions. So after I had my undercover assignment with narcotics. Uh, for nine months, I had to go back to patrol, and I had to do that those three years. Okay. Which I which I did, and then uh, and then I went to uh, Metropolitan Division, which uh, was uh, basically <clears throat> they take the best officers out of the street uh, from patrol, and they 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 put them in uh, in assignments the, where uh, <clears throat> they have crime problems that they're trying to prevent and uh and and solve so from there uh I was in metropolitan division and uh I got an assignment uh to narcotic division as as a uh <clears throat> it wasn't a permanent assignment it was just a temporary assignment but I uh, <clears throat> but it was like going back to you know, I knew all the guys, and I I knew everybody there. I'd been there for nine, nine months, and uh, now I was uh, smarter because I I knew where the drugs were coming from, mm-hmm. what organizations were doing them. <clears throat> so I went back, and uh, I impressed uh, <clears throat> the folks that were there. In uh, 1968, I was. Uh, uh, brought into the division uh, as a permanent uh, detective. And then uh, in the early 70s, I think it was 69-70, is when the division reorganized. Uh, at, the, at the time I was there, we were in partners, uh, two or three guys to a partnership, mm-hmm. and we worked with those we, every day. But uh, in 69, <clears throat> we, we formed... Uh, squads and usually five men to a squad and and we were uh self-contained so we could go any place and and we did we we went out of the county uh to wherever the wherever the drugs were, were coming into the to the to the city of los angeles uh, we'd go so uh Okay, so you could go anywhere in the county uh, on your assignment. You didn't have to be in a given area. Any place in the state, actually, any any place place in the country. Okay. So, uh, and we did. We went to places like uh, Florida and New York and uh, Hmm. uh, San Diego and, and even Canada. I've been to Canada three times. And of course, when you when you go to places like that, you have to hook up with the locals, and uh, and basically they they adopt your case because they're in charge of their area. You don't you don't really have venue there, and uh, so but that's that's 
kind of the way it was, and uh, and it, it still is. Um, now they they work in federal task forces, and uh, and the and the feds have uh, you know jurisdiction in every location in the country. So yeah, uh, and was that was that part of Operation Pacific, or was that a different thing? <coughs> Operation Pacific came later on. Um, what happened with Operation Pacific is uh, before the air, before uh, the the airlines uh, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> before the airlines uh, required you to have identification to fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, drug drug dealers were bringing drugs right into the cities by by just going getting on a commercial flight and uh, and, and bringing all kinds of drugs in. So a, a uh, airport detail was formed. So after about oh maybe three or four months, uh, we started to diversify that and. Uh, and I was in the I was at the airport for about four or five months, and I forget what, when when this happened. And so we wanted to take care of all kinds of transportation. So we changed the name from the airport detail to the transportation detail, and and we were just trying to interdict any drugs that were coming in to the city of Los Angeles via transportation, so uh, trains, buses, airplanes, mm-hmm. and, and boats. And so uh, I took the boat detail, and uh, I went down <clears throat> to uh, San Pedro, which was the hub of, uh, of the, the harbor, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> and I, asked, I, asked the, I asked the police department for you know, a crew, so I could work. Well, they could only give me one person, and uh, so me and that person went down there, and uh, we spent several months. And then I I went to other police departments, and and I gathered gathered uh, personnel from them. So before you know it, we were we were up in the oh maybe I, at that time. <clears throat> Um, half a dozen, maybe eight, eight people, and wow. we didn't have an office. So <laughs> yeah. I went to the city hall, and uh, in, which is one in in San Pedro, and I I asked the councilwoman if they had any space, and they gave us a space, and we built we built a, a, a task force there, uh, which included customs yeah. and DEA yeah. and FBI and. Uh, and Long Beach PD and Sheriff's Department and LAPD and, and the Harbor Department. We we had some twenty something people wow. assigned to the task force. And uh, Hank, we, we need to take another. Excuse me, a, excuse me a second. We need to take another quick break. I'm sorry, this is great. We All need right. to take another quick break. Though so that's the voice of Hank Fresco. We'll we'll be right back. News, opinion, passion. 
hear me? Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Los Angeles Police Department retired Hank Fresses telling us about his experiences with the war on drugs in L.A. And, and Hank, you were just talking about setting up this office in San Pedro. So this was the like the inception of the multi-agency task force, wasn't it? It was. It was. And, and we were so successful that uh, uh, it's obviously caught on. I mean, there's, there's I can't tell you how many uh, task forces done everywhere. are. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, they're every place. I mean that that has become uh, the the way to the way the law enforcement is going now. We didn't invent the task force. Uh, it was back east, uh, uh, but it but it hadn't made its way to the west coast yet, and uh, there'd been a lot of talk about it, but nobody had done it. And mm-hmm. so when we did it, and uh, it was successful. And then uh, everybody started getting on the bandwagon, and uh, uh, it was it was great. Uh, so when you when you see fifty tons of marijuana, and uh, or two or three four hundred uh, kilos of cocaine, and, and, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's a wonderment. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and uh, some of these cases uh, I laid out in the book, and I had the advantage of uh, of speaking to informants. You know, after after you made the arrest, some of the people uh, 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 become informants, and uh, and and there's one one fellow I I remember distinctly because he wasn't part of the group. He wasn't part of the marijuana group. He he was just uh, taken on the boat to uh, 
to take care of the electronics. Hmm. And uh, and so when when he got when we caught him, uh, basically he was he wasn't part of them. He wasn't he wasn't selling marijuana. He didn't want to deal with marijuana. It was just. It was just a livelihood for him. He was just going on the boat to take care of the electronics and, and get paid for it, and that, mm-hmm. that was it. So he had no reason not to tell us. And, uh, and I actually, I built up a pretty good relationship with him. And he told me about the whole trip, uh, taking the boat down to Columbia. And uh, that, that's laid out in the book, uh, and the whole story and... and, and and how he dealt with it, and uh, he was an alcoholic himself, and uh, so he wasn't completely functioning uh, uh, 100%, but he, his story, uh, that, that particular story is one of my best that I've ever, that I've ever come across, because it, it, it was one of the first times when you get to... to find out what happened on the inside. Right. How they set did, it up. And did you how they keep went him about their business? And did you keep him as, as an informant for a long time or was it just that one time deal? Uh it was just that one time deal because he wasn't involved in the drug trade. Oh, okay. Uh, and and then he he was like I said he was an alcoholic so uh, he didn't last long after that. I mean, he was a true alcoholic. Mm-hmm. He drank. Mm-hmm. He drank uh, vodka every single day, and, and and it finally caught up to him. And I forget what, how old he was uh, at the time. Uh, probably uh, he, he looked like he was in his eighties, but he was only in his sixties, fifties, fifty-eight, something like that. But alcohol had taken a a vast toll on his on his uh, physical being, and um, <clears throat> so one of the last things he did was tell me the whole story of how how uh, he got involved and and uh, the trip down to Columbia and and uh, and the trip back and it's it's a fascinating uh, uh, story actually. Uh, and that, in, and that intelligence is invaluable to uh, an operation like that, right? Oh yeah. Well, he he couldn't tell us about it until after it was over, and uh, because you know he didn't want he didn't want to go to jail himself, right? But, right. Uh, but just but just to give you a hint of I don't want to ruin it uh, if you're going to read the book, but. Uh, <clears throat> When they when they got the load and they were in Colombia and they were on their way back, <clears throat> the 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 guys that were running the boat, they had to test the marijuana, and so they mm-hmm. all got high, and they tied off the wheel and and uh, the boat ran ashore. Oh great! <laughs> and, and it turned over, and, and the, uh, uh, the pirates attacked them, trying to get the weed from them. It was. It's, it's quite a quite a story, and uh, <laughs> uh, oh yeah, it's quite a quite a deal. And uh, they actually had rifles on the boat, and, and uh, they used those rifles to protect themselves and mm-hmm. and uh, fight off the pirates. But anyway, uh, back <laughs> to the task force. Uh, we were successful, and 
and basically it became a it became a hit and uh, everybody wanted in on it and because uh, we were making hauls of you know 20 20,000 pounds of 20 tons of marijuana 10 pounds tons of marijuana 50 tons of marijuana oh can't even imagine that, that amount of me, and that took me because sometimes you can investigate in Los Angeles and the drugs came in and, and, well, the reason why I went up to Canada is because the drugs actually came in in Canada huh. and the Mounties uh, seized it. So, um, but we knew about the case and uh, we knew we knew that they were on the, on the water and, uh, and, and that kind of thing. And we had one case where the drugs were actually taken off uh, in Thailand, where a mm-hmm. lot of the drugs, a lot of the marijuana comes from. Right. And uh, the, the Thai authorities uh, took that case. So we had to put, put together a conspiracy, and, uh, which we did, and I, I forget how many people were involved in that conspiracy, maybe 30 or 40 people. So you go to court with 30 or 40 people, and you got 30 or 40 <laughs> attorneys. That's complicated. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun and then yeah. some of the cases were severed and because they just couldn't do that many people uh in in one courtroom. Right. Right. They wouldn't have room for a jury. Oh. <laughs> yeah, just defendants and attorneys. So, um so hey, tell people where to get your book. I'm, you know, it sounds well, like a really good read. I have not read it. I'm going to read it. It sounds like a really good read. It's LAPD Chronicles: A History of the War on Drugs from 1964 to 1992. Yeah, the the easiest way is to go to Amazon.com, and uh, and and you know you you type in books, and then and then when you type in books, it'll give you a place to type in and you just put the name of the book and then it, it's right there. And yeah, and probably if you just put in LAPD Chronicles it would come up. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, okay. definitely. Yeah, and in all categories it'll it would come up. And uh and that's a good read. And it, it gives you a, a good idea of uh, of the war on drugs and how it got started and uh why it got started. And and I I use the analogy of cancer hmm. and to using drugs and and, and I, I I do that early on in the book because a lot of people are, uh, are down on 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 the war on drugs. It's they can, they consider it a failure, hmm. and because they consider it a failure, they want to legalize it. Well, I compare the drug addiction to cancer. So there's no cure for cancer. Should we stop examining how to stop cancer? Mm -hmm. Should we just abandon it, make it essentially legal? I mean, just accept it? No, we don't do that. We keep fighting it. And we keep fighting it because it's a, it's an illness that that takes a lot of our loved ones and yep. and uh drug As abuse drugs, <laughs> drugs takes is a in lot the same of our loved category. ones yeah yeah that's a good analogy 
Well, this this is just fascinating. How long did it take you to write this book, Hank? Well, I wrote I wrote some six hundred pages, over six hundred pages, and the publishers told me that they said, uh, "No way is someone going to read six hundred pages." So I had to get it down to around three hundred and sixty pages. I think is what it's in the book, and it took me a good five years to do and uh, to to essentially uh, get it to where I wanted it. And uh, the first time that I had it published in, 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 the, in December of 2013, the publisher made a, made a big mistake. And, uh, and so I sent it back to them, and it didn't, the, the, the final uh, uh, didn't come out till I, I forget what it was, April of 2014, and then I had it evaluated uh, by uh, professional evaluators, uh, three of them. And uh, so that part is in the book, and they, they put those evaluations in the beginning of the book. And I, and I probably didn't get those in till October of 2014. So mm-hmm. basically the, the, new, the new version is, uh, is about, was finalized in probably October of 2014. So it's almost hot off the press. Yeah, that's all, almost. I, I've been to uh, uh, book fairs in uh, different places. And of course, a lot of policemen uh, want to read it and have read it. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's not a, it's, you know, it's not going to be a <laughs> one of these hot sellers that's going to sell millions it's it's more uh a historical uh piece uh and and if you like stories they, i think there's 37 38 stories mm-hmm. police stories and uh and i try to give give the aspect of uh, uh you know from both sides because well, yeah because if you get it only from one side um yeah it, it's 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 kind of dull and uh, and routine but some of the suspects that I have been able to talk to, you know, g- gave me their side of the story. And uh, so I, I published that whenever I could. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, uh, and you'll see that in, in, in the book uh, where, where you got suspects actually thinking and talking and uh, uh, <clears throat> making, making themselves, putting themselves in the, in the driver's seat uh, for the time being, at least, and uh, it, 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 I think it makes a good read. Well, it, it sounds like a good read, and it sounds to me like you didn't write it because you thought you were going to make millions. You wrote it because you thought you had a great story, right. and it, you wanted to detail that history, which is really important. That history of LAPD for those years is unique, and I'm glad you did it. I think it's just yeah, it, it is. It is. Because there's not many people writing books and saying what happened during those years right. uh, <clears throat> when when we joined uh, when we joined uh, the federal government uh, in in the war on drugs uh, before we were fighting with the government over turf yeah and uh, the way to do things 
And I lay out in the book the reasons why we fought, and it mostly was over mandates. Uh, city of Los yeah. Angeles, I'll right. give you this one example. And the city of Los Angeles has a, has a mandate to to keep the drugs off the street, right? Keep them out of the uh, away from the children and 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 keep them away from uh, users. <clears throat> well, the federal government don't really care about that. Right. They're they're <laughs> you know, and and yeah. so I I used to have an argument with customs all the time. I said, look, there's a line here. A ship docks at the dock. And it's your responsibility. But when they yeah. walk out of that gate and they walk onto the streets of Los Angeles, it's our responsibility. And they, and they have <laughs> yeah. their drugs. Right. It becomes right. the city hey. of Los Angeles. All right, Hank. We're we're totally out of time. I so appreciate oh. you sharing your experience um, and being on the show today. Thank you so much. Um, okay. And I'm sorry. Go ahead. Were you going to say something? Okay. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Okay, so so to the, your listeners, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. And Hank Foresta is a real investigator. It's PIC Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIC Classified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.